0: Welcome to Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, uh, it's really good to have you, thank you for coming into London. I wonder how, how far we have people who have come today. Uh, hands up if you've come from somewhere in London. Oh, that's, that's quite a lot of you. Hands up if you've come from uh, one of the other major cities in the UK, yeah, quite a few of those. Hands up if you've come from Manchester or further north. We've got a few. Yeah. <laughs> I won't keep going, but thank you. Thank you for being here. I mean, I'm pretty sure Munther wins, because he's come from Palestine. (laughs) Um, My name is the Reverend Dr. Simon Woodman, and I'm the minister of this beautiful church. Uh, There's more of you here now than there were this morning, but nonetheless. (laughs) Uh, it, it, it's really uh, good to have you here. I just need to tell you one or two things uh, about the building. Uh, firstly and most importantly, if you need them, we have toilets. So on either side uh, at the front here, and there's also an accessible toilet in the back. And those of you who are in the gallery, if you need the lose, it might be better to go all the way to the basement. So that's the stairs you came up. Just go all the way to the bottom and then there's more toilets in the basement so people know how to get to the loo which is always important fire escapes if you're uh, downstairs it's back the way you came if you're upstairs it's either back the way you came or through the doors on either side at the front but hopefully we won't be needing any of that um, those of you who have come with children, uh, absolutely brilliant, you're very welcome. We love having children here. Um, if you want to make use of a uh, soft playroom, there's a little room over to one side over there with some glass doors on it. You're welcome to go in there. There's sort of um, children's soft play equipment in there and the uh, audio from the service is also relayed in there so you can be in there and hear what's going on as well. Uh, this church was founded in 1848 and it was built by somebody who at that point was one of the richest men in the country. He'd made his money building railways, and then he got into building buildings, and he built the Houses of Parliament, he built Trafalgar Square and Nelson's Column, and he was a Baptist. And he believed there should be a Baptist cause established in London, so uh, he, he decided to start it. So he built this building, headhunted his former minister from Norwich, and started a church. And from the very beginning, the vision of this congregation was that it should be a congregation that makes a tangible difference to uh, the welfare of other human beings beyond its own congregation. So one of its first things that it did was em- em- employ somebody who worked in the slums. The basement for a while was used as a school, pre the Education Act, to educate children from the slums because we had a terrible slum just behind the church. It's where Google and YouTube are based now, so you know things have come on. Um, but... That that vision for being a church that wants to make a difference was always there. Three years into the establishment of the church it was sorely tested because it was 1851 in the year of the Great Exhibition and we had visiting Americans coming over to the UK to visit the Great Exhibition and they wanted to come and see the shiny new Baptist church for central London. So uh, the church had to ticket its services, much as we've had to do today, in order to avoid being uh, overfull. And they took an advert in The Times and other newspapers, and they said, um, Bloomsbury Baptist Chapel, which was the name we went by in those days, welcomes Americans visiting London for the Great Exhibition, unless you are supportive of the Fugitive Slave Law. This is one of the, slave laws, that, uh, that one of the laws that returned people who escaped slavery back to their masters. Um, And they said, if that is you, you are denied access to the Lord's table. So within three years, they were excommunicating slave owners. And I think that sets a profound trajectory for what it means to be Christians who care deeply about injustice in other parts of the world. And that brings us straight to today via Martin Luther King preaching here in 1961. So we stand in the footsteps of great people. And we have another prophet with us today who we'll be hearing from shortly. So uh, I'm going to, the the, the order of service is going to proceed largely unannounced. People will just pop up and do their thing when it's time. Um, So we'll be looking forward to hearing from Munther shortly. But now we're going to get on with the service.
1: They call us now before they drop the bombs. The phone rings and someone who knows my first name calls and says in perfect Arabic, this is David. And in my stupor of sonic booms and glass shattering symphonies still smashing around in my head, I think, do I know any Davids in Gaza? They call us now to say, run. You have 58 seconds from the end of this message your house is next. They think of it as some kind of wartime courtesy. It doesn't matter that there is nowhere to run to. It means nothing that the borders are closed and your papers are worthless and mark you only for a life sentence in this prison by the sea. And the alleyways are narrow and there are more human lives Packed one against the other than anywhere else in the world. Just run. We aren't trying to kill you. It doesn't matter that you can't call us back to tell us that the people we claim to want aren't in your house. That there's no one here except you and your children. Who were cheering for Argentina. Sharing the last loaf of bread for this week. Counting candles left in case the power goes out. It doesn't matter that you have children. You live in the wrong place, and now is your chance to run to nowhere. It doesn't matter that 58 seconds isn't long enough to find your wedding album, or your son's favorite blanket, or your daughter's almost completed application form, or your shoes, or to gather everyone in the house even. It doesn't matter what you have planned. It doesn't matter who you are. Prove you're human. Prove you stand on two legs. Run.
2: Let us pray. Jesus Christ, light of the world, as the violence rages, we turn to you. As divisions widen and hatred deepens, we cry to you. As families are torn apart, as hostages and their families live in fear, as civilians are killed and injured, we lift our souls to you. Christ under the rubble, Christ of the brokenhearted, Christ of the despairing, work in our hearts that we may see your image in every human being, that we may learn to love as you love, so that men, women and children everywhere may be reconciled to you and to each other. Amen.
3: We read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 to 7. The Lord says, Shout as loud as you can. Tell my people Israel about their sins. They worship me every day, claiming that they are eager to know my ways and obey my laws. They say they want me to give them just laws and that they might take pleasure in worshiping me. The people ask, why should we fast if the Lord never notices? Why should we go without food if he pays no attention? The Lord says to them, the truth is, that at the same time as you fast, you pursue your own interests and oppress your workers. Your fasting makes you violent and you quarrel and fight. Do you think this kind of fasting will make me listen to your prayers? When you fast, you make yourself suffer you bow your heads low, like a blade of brass, and spread out sackcloth and ashes to lie on. Is that what you call fasting? Do you think I will be pleased with that? The kind of fasting I want is this. Remove the chains of oppression and the yoke of injustice and let the oppressed go free. Share your food with the hungry and open your homes to the homeless poor. Give clothes to those who have nothing to wear and do not refuse to help your own relatives.
4: Good afternoon thank you for coming to be with us this afternoon. It's good to see many new faces and many familiar faces. And I don't take lightly your support and your solidarity with us. And I truly wish I was here in different circumstances. Yet I'm glad that this opportunity we have to come together in one heart and in unity. Is this not the fast that I choose? To lose the bonds of injustice and to undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? It has been more than 130 days since this war began. It is beyond my comprehension to believe that this war, this genocide, is still going on. 28,000 killed, including 12,500 children. Thousands more still under the rubble. 70,000 or so injured. 1.7 million displaced, trapped, and starved. This is beyond inhumane. What happened to the conscience of world leaders? And I say world leaders and the lord of wars because the voices in the street are sending a different message. They are speaking loud and clear. Stop this genocide. But sadly, the warlords are not listening. The international Court of Justice was clear in its description of what is happening and its rebuke to Israel and those complicit in it. Yet even the ruling of the ICJ was not enough to stop this genocide. And even worse now, we fear that Israel will assault Rafah. Could it even get worse? The people of Gaza broadcast to us scenes of their genocide The war war leaders declared to us and to the world their intention to wipe out Gaza and recolonize it. And the world is still debating and deliberating whether what is happening is a war of genocide or not. It's hard to believe. And now Israeli soldiers are posting mocking videos of the destruction of an entire civilization while the world still debates and deliberates. They're even deliberating just getting humanitarian aid to Gaza. We're not able just to get humanitarian aid, let alone end this genocide. That's why I say truth is evident to all to see. There is nothing to debate. Apartheid is clear. Genocide is clear. We don't need to explain it anymore. Truth is evident for all to see. And believe me, world leaders know the truth. They are denying it. In fact, they have been denying it for 76 years now. I think of my own work. How many delegations did we receive? How many lectures did we give? How many times did we explain things? And what's making even more and more harder for us is that when Israel alleges that some members from UNRWA were involved in the attacks on October 7th, support to honor was stopped directly from countries around the world, including the UK. The amount of hypocrisy is incomprehensible. The level of racism involved for such hypocrisy is appalling. I really cannot get beyond this. And now, 130 days later, We have some world leaders and church leaders who are beginning to change their stance. It took 130 days. And I say it is too late. You already showed up to Tel Aviv to show support. You provided the theological and political cover. You described it as self-defense, Israel's legitimate right to exercise self-defense. And now you want to convince us that you care, after you have given the green light for this genocide, even offering to pay the bill, and now you're showing concern? I am sorry. You cannot undo what happened. You cannot change history. You cannot watch the blood from your hand. Indeed, the conscience of the world is dead. They have grown numb. World leaders are obsessed about their thrones. They're obsessed with power. They are intoxicated with power. We have world leaders literally signing, autographing the missiles. Have you seen that? They're obsessed with war. They don't care for the victims. In fact, they already labeled the victims as terrorists, animals, and evil ones. Think of the level of dehumanization behind such attitudes. So don't tell me it's not racism. Those complicit in this genocide do not see us as equals, as humans. How else do you explain this lack of empathy for human lives? For children dying, pulled from under the rubble, for babies found decomposed in the hospitals in Gaza? And 130 days later, we are tired of sharing these stories, but we will not stop. We're tired of sharing about the killing of our children. We have been pleading, Lord, have mercy for more than 130 days, indeed for 76 years. As Palestinians, we find comfort in our faith, and we find hope in the word of God. This Sunday is the first season of Lent and so as we journey towards the cross, may we reflect on the profound meanings in this season. And I think of three things, beginning with Ash Wednesday, it's a time of repentance. It's also a time of fasting and as such a time to reflect on the meaning of true piety. And it's a time to reflect on the mystery of suffering and how the road to glory has to go through the cross. So let me talk about these three things, these profound meaning and messages, and link them to what's happening in Gaza. If we talk about repentance, how our world needs to repent today from apathy, from numbness to suffering, and from normalizing and justifying a genocide. Morality and ethics are missing from politics today. Just to think of the idea that in our political sphere, we have normalized a genocide. This is why we need to repent. For when world leaders watch a genocide and ethnic cleansing unfold live on TV and social media, yet continue to explain it, while only raising concern over the death of innocent civilians, I think our collective humanity is at stake. This is why I say we need to repent. And when churches justify a genocide or are silent watching from distance, making carefully crafted balanced statements, the credibility of the gospel is at stake. We need to repent as humanity from our racism, from our superiority, from our bigotry. For this word confirmed to me that the world does not look at us as equals. They describe a genocide recently, one politician, as a misstep. Biden said it's over the top. War crimes and the killing of 30,000 people are a misstep. We need to repent from the sin of apartheid. The idea that certain people are more entitled than others. And to think that churches are promoting this is beyond my understanding. And in this Lent season, we are also called to reflect on our religious practices. We're so good at these in churches, right? And I think of the meaning of fasting as we read in the prophecy of Isaiah. And the message is clear. Piety that does not produce compassion and mercy is false piety. It's false spirituality. Piety that does not lead to hunger for justice is false piety. And I want to read what Isaiah said again. The fast that God chooses is to lose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. How much our world? And our churches are full with false piety. A piety that lacks mercy, justice, and truth. As I read these words from Isaiah, it's as if he is talking about our world today. Isaiah challenges us to go beyond charity. And many Christians love to hide behind charity. To look like good ones while being silent when the genocide is happening. This is about taking a stance and actually in the active participation to bring justice and liberation. This is not about making a statement when you see a genocide. Jesus did not say, I was hungry, and you prayed for me and made a statement. (laughs) Jesus said, I was a prisoner and you came to me. So it's not about praying for peace, raising concern, or sending support. Piety, religiosity, true spirituality means the active participation in loosing bonds of injustice, undoing the straps of the yoke, letting the oppressed go free, and breaking every yoke. This is active solidarity. This is about action. And I ask, is this what we're doing today? Is this what the church is doing today? Let's be honest with ourselves. And I hope you understand why we as Palestinian Christians have been crying out, where is the church? The question when we face injustice and suffering should not always be, where is God in the midst of suffering? Many times the question should be, Where was the church? Where was the church? Many times we're occupied by religious practices, theological discussions. And moreover, the thing I feel we lack the most today is courage. And I hesitate using this word. Because the courage needed to speak truth is nothing in comparison to the courage the people of Gaza are showing us every day. We need courage to speak truth, but we're not speaking many times. We fear the consequences. We fear the backlash. We live in a time when the church wants to avoid controversy at any cost. Can you imagine if Jesus walked on earth avoiding controversy? Can you imagine if when Jesus was asked these difficult questions, he would craft balanced statements that aimed as appealing to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples and the Romans, and if possible, his heavenly father? Can you imagine if these are, isn't this what the church is doing today? The way church statements dance around the issue of a ceasefire or God forbid condemning Israel is indeed amazing. They dance, I mean, call for a ceasefire. They write two pages, three pages long statements that basically say nothing other than unequivocally condemning Hamas. That's the only thing you can trust church statements to say. And honestly, I ask myself as I was preparing this, should we be surprised as Palestinian Christians? Because how many times did we as Palestinian Christians experience rejection from the Western Church? How many times were invitations sent to us to speak in global venues, and then these invitations were canceled? Why? For fear of controversy. There are church leaders who are willing to sacrifice Who are not willing to sacrifice for the sake of avoiding the hustle of having to explain to outsiders why they are meeting with Palestinian Christians they'd rather not do that so they don't invite us they don't meet to us they sacrifice us for comfort and it happened for me even in this trip you know sometimes I joke Jesus sat with sinners consider us sinners and listen to us and sit with us amazing the idea that church leaders fear having to explain to others why they met with Palestinian Christians because it's controversial and then end up not meeting with us it's beyond my comprehension this is why when I say courage I actually shouldn't use the word courage they sacrifice us for comfort the same way they offered us as an atonement sacrifice for their own racism and anti-Semitism, repenting on our land over a sin that was committed in their land. And listen to me, all of this, while we claim we follow a crucified Savior who sacrificed everything, endured pain and rejection for the sake of those he loved. We claim we follow him But are not willing to sacrifice even our comfort we just want to avoid controversy when the church does not want to lose its comfort something is seriously wrong with our christian witness when we don't want to sacrifice our comfort something is seriously wrong with our christian witness when the church sacrifices truth For the sake of conformity and avoiding controversy, something is seriously wrong with our Christian witness. And so thirdly, as I think of this season, we need to reflect on the mystery of Christ's own suffering and consider our identity in the cross and as followers of a crucified yet risen Savior. We need to think of the meaning of suffering and the meaning of costly, costly solidarity. Jesus said, if you wish to follow me, what do we do? Deny yourself and follow me. And he said, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? These are the words of Jesus. Jesus here tells us what it means to be a Christian, a follower of a crucified Savior. Jesus says that as a Christian, a Christian is one who denies himself or herself, who carries the cross, and who loses oneself for the sake of Christ and the gospel. He's the one who understands that if he wins the whole world, it has no value without saving yourself. Friends, Christianity without sacrifice is not Christianity if we follow a crucified savior. And the first and most important thing we must sacrifice is the self, is the I. This is what Jesus did himself. This is how he lived. He was the one who denied himself for us. And he was the one who was crucified for us as humans. Because he loved us. And he wants the same from his followers. Jesus never sought what is for himself, but always what is for others. This is the kind of love that says the other is before me and I am here for the sake of others. Have we forgotten what it means to be a Christian? And then he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? When I think about the amount of wisdom hidden in this phrase, for how many people have lost themselves and their souls, their values in pursuit of glory, power, or even comfort. And I'm not just talking about political leaders. How many people less their soul and values when they took this approach, the approach of power, the logic of might? Today, we see it expressed in colonialism, genocide, and exploitation, the approach of tyranny. How many leaders and peoples choose, chose silence in the face of a genocide in order to win the world? To gain the world but in reality they lost their soul. This is why I say what the world needs today is courageous leaders, people who are willing to sacrifice sometimes when they speak the truth. How many politicians and religious leaders we know who have been bought off and they lack the courage to speak the truth? And I ask is this how we follow Christ? They might have won the world, but they lost themselves, as Jesus said. Over my life, I've met many people. And I met many people who ended up becoming influential, either church leaders or even politicians in very influential positions. When we first met them, they were with us. They understand, they're for justice. We will do everything for you. And along the way, as they become more and more important and influential, they sacrificed Palestine. And believe me, I know so many of these leaders. What does it gain a man if he wins the whole world but loses his soul? And similarly, I am tired and fed up of church leaders who share with us behind closed doors and in confidentiality that they support us 100% but that they are confined in what they can say in public. I hear this all the time from church leaders and politicians. You know how frustrating this is for us as Palestinians. You know how frustrating to know that politicians, they know what's happening but they say we cannot speak up. Leaders in their comfort zone lack the courage to speak up, while the honorable people of Ghazarsk risk everything for the sake of freedom and dignity. They have more honor and dignity than those politicians or faith leaders who are not speaking up. And I speak here as a Christian. The followers of Jesus risk all to speak truth to power. As followers of Jesus, we must be willing to risk all for the sake of speaking truth to power. And this is why in Palestine today, we don't talk just about solidarity. We talk about costly solidarity. Because we know that sometimes there is a price to weigh. Suffering. Suffering. This war has indeed shaken our faith in humanity, and sometimes in God. But we cannot lose our faith in God. We continue to search for a voice. We continue to cry. And I found so much comfort in the Psalms of lament. And we cried those sounds over Gaza. My God, my God, why did you leave Gaza? How long will you forget her completely? Why do you hide your face from Gaza? In the daytime, I call upon you, but you do not answer. By night, we find no rest. Do not depart from the people of Gaza, for distress is near, for there is no one to help. Our souls and our lives approach the abyss. Our eyes melt from humiliation. We call upon you, Lord, every day. We stretch out our hands to you. Why, Lord, do you reject our souls? Why do you hide your face from us? We search for God in this land, in our land. People ask me the question all the time, where is God in the midst of this genocide? How do we explain his silence? And away from philosophy and existential theological questions, I look at our history, and I see that in our land, in Palestine, even God has become the victim of oppression, death, and the war machine and colonialism. We see the Son of God crying out the same question on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same prayer that Jesus prayed. Why do you let me be tortured, crucified? God suffers with the people of this land. God suffers with them, sharing the same fate with us. And this remains in a mysterious way. This becomes our comfort in the midst of suffering. The idea of God's presence with us amidst pain and even amid death. For Jesus is no stranger to pain, arrest, torture, and death. He went through all of this. So today we say he walks with us in our pain and suffering. God is under the rubble in Gaza. He is with the frightened and the refugees. He is in the operating room. This is our consolation. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. My prayer has always been for those who are suffering from injustice to feel and experience the healing and comforting presence of God with them. That's why we say, and we said during Christmas, if Jesus were to be born in our world today, he will be born in Gaza under the rubble. Jesus under the rubble is the message of God who identifies with humanity in its suffering and pain. It's about the God who sides with the oppressed even being born among them, as one of them, becoming a refugee and a victim of the violence of empire. God is in the solidarity with the marginalized and the oppressed. God takes sides. God is not neutral. And this is the message. God's solidarity should become our solidarity. If God takes sides, so should we. Neutrality is not an option. Gaza is indeed today the moral compass of the world. This war has divided the world. And I think this is a good thing. We need to know where people stand. Gaza is the moral compass of the world, and we either side with the logic of power and ruthlessness with the lords of war and with those who justify and rationalize the killing of children. Or you side with the victims of oppression and injustice and those who are besieged and dehumanized by the forces of empire and colonization. It is really a simple choice. You either support a genocide, turn a blind eye or justify a genocide, or you cry out, no, not in our name, stop this genocide. So I come here to the UK and I want to challenge the church here. If we truly seek justice and righteousness in obedience to Christ, we must have the courage to speak up and call things by name. This is not a conflict. Israel is not exercising its right for self-defense. Rather, Israel is the colonizer. Israel is a settler colonial entity. They have displaced millions of Palestinians. Israel was built on the ruins of the people of Palestine. We live under apartheid. Call it. What is happening in Gaza is a genocide. It's ethnic cleansing. And if you continue to repeat the empire's narrative, this only serves to empower the aggressors and maintain this injustice. Can we continue to even speak about peace? Or even resolution to a conflict? Or should we really call for an end to tyranny and injustice and apartheid? Vocabulary is important. We're not talking about a struggle between two forces. This is not simply about a ceasefire, but putting an end to 76 years of ethnic cleansing and today putting an end to this genocide. If we're truly concerned and want an end, we must call things by name. I'm tired of diplomacy. This is a time to act. This is a time, quoting Isaiah again, to lose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke friends it's time for the church to be the church and I'm convinced that the way and how churches deal with what is happening today this injustice, this genocide will reveal a great deal about the identity of these churches and we do not exaggerate when we say that the credibility of our Christian witness is at stake here I recall something my good South African friend, Alan Bosak, says, namely that Palestine today is the gauge for churches and the conscience of churches today. And he said this before October 7th, before this genocide. How much true are these words today? And before I conclude, having called out the church, I want to acknowledge the many of you who have been speaking up. The many of you who are sacrificing, who have shown costly solidarity. We see you, we feel you, and I want to say thank you from the bottom of our heart. We're doing this together. And your actions, your prayers, your supports means a whole lot to us, especially in the face of rejection that we see. So thank you, and thank you for those who came with us. It has been been indeed my honor to work with many of you during these times, and we cannot rest. So my call today is simple. Number one, we cannot rest until this genocide is over, and this genocide now. This is a moral obligation. It's a moral call. And it's not about words. It's about action. We cannot afford more death. We cannot rest. Until this genocide is over. So let's act, let's mobilize creative, nonviolent means. I encourage you to continue to speak out, to join demonstrations, to mobilize within your communities, congregations, put pressure on your political leaders through calls and written correspondences, organize nonviolent direct action campaigns and sit ins. Whatever it takes to compel your government and decision-makers to take action. This is beyond urgent. We need to act, and we cannot rest. And we need accountability in the face of war crimes. That's why I said call things by name. Hold people and governments accountable. Injustice will continue as long as No one holds the aggressor accountable. The reports on apartheid must be taken seriously. The ruling of the ICJ must be taken seriously. We need to act. We need to invest morally. We need to implement the international law. We need to boycott if needed. We need to call for sanctions. We need to hold people accountable. Otherwise, all of our words will just become empty words if we are not acting. And friends, please consider what it means to be true peacemakers. It is time here the church in the UK moves from its shallow diplomacy and neutrality into prophetic peacemaking and costly solidarity. You need to challenge your own churches. The prophet Isaiah says, Learn to do good, not just speak good. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. These are all active participation words, these are not statements and prayers only. And I want to conclude by going back to a letter we've written back in October. And I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday we said this call for repentance, some of you know it, in October, warning about the genocide, saying this is a vengeance campaign, calling the church to repent, seeing already that the church is complicit. And I can't believe that these words are still relevant in February. It's hard. It's hard to believe this. We saw it coming. We talked about the God who will judge the world in injustice. And I want, in conclusion, to read the conclusion of that call, because it's very powerful. Back then we said, and today I say, we also remind ourselves and our Palestinian people that our somood, our steadfastness, is anchored in our just cause and our historical rootedness in this land. Our sumud is anchored in our just cause and our historical rootedness in this land. This is why we're resilient. As Palestinians and as Palestinian Christians, we continue to find our courage and consolation in the God who dwells with those who are of contrite and humble spirit. We find courage in the solidarity we receive from the crucified Christ, and we find hope in the empty tomb. We are also encouraged and empowered by the costly solidarity and support of many churches and grassroots faith movements around the world, challenging the dominance of ideologies of power and supremacy. We refuse to give in, even when our siblings abandon us. We are steadfast in our hope, resilient in our witness, and continue to be committed to the gospel of faith, hope, and love in the face of tyranny and darkness. Yes, we refuse to give in. And using a quote from the Kairos Palestine group, the Kairos Palestine document, we say, In the absence of all hope, we cry out our cry of hope. We believe in God, good and just, we believe that God's goodness will finally triumph over the evil of hate and death that still persist in our land. We will see here a new land and a new human being capable of rising up in the spirit to love each one of his or her own brothers and sisters. With this hope, we carry on. With this hope, we refuse to give in With this hope, we persist until justice prevails and until freedom prevails. End this genocide, Lord, we cry tonight. Thank you.
0: Friends, let us pray. Good and gracious God, you hate nothing that you have made and hear the cries of those who call to you. Open our ears to hear your voice. Open our hearts to fill them with your compassion. Open our minds and turn them towards wisdom. And stir our hands and feet to do your will. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen. And so we're going to sing together. As you are able, please stand. We will sing, O Lord, hear my prayer.
5: God says, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God?
6: Did you rise this morning, broken and hung over, with weariness and pain and rage, tattered from waving too long in a brutal wind? Get up, child, pull your bones upright, gather your skin and muscle into a patch of sun. Draw breath deep into your lungs, you will need it, for another day calls to you. I know you ache. I know you wish the work were done and you, with everyone you have ever loved, were on a distant shore, safe and unafraid. But remember this, tired as you are, you are not alone. Here and here, And here also there are others weeping and rising and gathering their courage. You belong to them and they to you. And together we will break through and bend the arc of justice all the way down into our lives.
5: Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you.
1: He is quiet, and so am I. He sips tea with lemon while I drink coffee. That's the difference between us. Like me, he wears a wide striped shirt, and like him, I read the evening paper. He doesn't see my secret glance. I don't see his secret glance. He's quiet, and so am I. He asks the way to something. I ask the way to something. A black cat walks between us, and I feel the midnight of its fur and he feels the midnight of its fur, too. I don't say to him, the sky today is clear and blue. He doesn't say to me, the sky today is clear. He's watched and the one watching, and I'm watched and the one watching. I move my left foot, he moves his right foot. I hum the melody of a song, he hums the melody of a similar song. I wonder, is he the mirror in which I see myself? I turn to look in his eyes, but I don't see him. I hurry from the cafe. I think maybe he's a killer, or maybe a passerby who thinks I am a killer. He's afraid, and so am I.
5: Out of the depth I cry to you, O Lord, Lord hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications.
7: i sure. just one word from the maker in all the ways be still just one touch from the healer and all will be made well so jesus i yeah. yeah.
5: For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope.
2: Human beings suffer, they torture one another, They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted or endured. The innocent in jails beat on their bars together. A hunger striker's father stands in a graveyard, dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call the miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling fire on the mountain or lightning and storm and a god speaks from the sky that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its turn
0: So friends, we're nearing the end, but we're not done yet. We're going to sing in a minute, but before that, we're going to have a a short conversation because we need to start thinking about what we're going to do. Uh, We have been called to action. The book of James offers a profound truth. The book of James says that faith without works is dead. If faith does not result in good coming into being in the world, then what is the point? So what do we do if we are people of faith when faced with a grave injustice, decades of oppression against the Palestinian people? What do we do when faced with unspeakable violence in Gaza? Well firstly of course we pray, but prayer is not enough, it is just the starting point. We need to make a journey from prayerful allyship to prayerful advocacy and then onward to prayerful activism. And I wonder where you are today on that journey from ally to advocate to activist. Prayer can make us allies. It can help us become people who care, people who pay attention to injustice. But it must not stop there. Because prayer also needs to inspire us to advocacy, to courageously lending our voices to the voices of the suffering, to speaking out when our friends and colleagues need to hear uncomfortable truths. But allyship is not enough and neither is advocacy. We need our faith to drive us further from allyship through advocacy into activism. Faith, if it is to have meaning, must lead to intentional action to bring about change. And the mystery of faith is that by the grace of God and through our prayerful activism, we find the beginnings of an answer to the very prayers we have been praying. So, as we make our journey to becoming prayerful activists, here are some practical suggestions. Number one. Turn up at some marches and some vigils. I mean, you're here. This is the perfect start. Were you at the march yesterday? Will you be at the next march? You know, turn up. If you can possibly get into Palestine, that is the thing to do. But that's, it's not impossible. It's just a little bit hard right now. You can also prayerfully read through the news emails from Embrace and Seville Kairos. Don't just have them ping in and then get rid of them. Read them prayerfully, and consider what action they might spur you to. Be brave, maybe speak out in your local congregation about the situation, and fearlessly challenge people to start getting involved. Write to, or even better, ask to meet with your MP. I'd been writing to my MP for ages and I wasn't getting a reply so I wrote a very stern letter and asked him if I was shouting into a void and pointed out that I was a member of his party and that, you know, what was he going to do. And I got invited to meet him in the House of Commons and we had a coffee together and I was able to speak about my own experience and concerns about Palestine and now I have an open invitation to talk with him more about that. You can do that. This is not hard, it just requires the decision to do it. If you are from a church tradition that has inherited power, in other words, if you have bishops in the House of Lords, well, some of us don't. If you do, for goodness sakes, use that power that history has given you. I mean, you know, we might think that it probably shouldn't have done, but, you know, Christendom has to be good for something. These and actions like them are what it means to be a person of faith. This is how the world is changed for good. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. We're going to sing now. We're going to bring our time of vigil to a close. We're going to sing the wonderful song, Longing for Light, We Wait in Darkness. So as you're able, can I invite you to stand, and we will sing together at the end of which Munther will send us out with a blessing.
4: coming to be with us here. I want to say particularly thank you uh, to my family here in the UK and I called uh, I think it was two weeks ago I called you Simon and I said I'm coming to London let's do a visit." Uh, and immediately embrace the Middle East uh, Kairos sabil uh, it's an honor to work with you both uh, you are truly a second family to us here in Palestine I'm grateful for um, the ability to work together and partner for the kingdom. So I want to thank you uh, for your work. Uh, As a word of gratitude, I'm going to give you all this plateau uh, to Simon um, of Jesus under the rubble that we've created during this Christmas, the idea of God who is in solidarity with us. If Jesus were to be born today, he would be born in Gaza under the rubble. So thank you for hosting us. And thank you, of course, to all of you who come from different faith traditions uh, united for our thirst and passion for justice. Let us not rest until this war is over and until uh, until justice prevails. Shall we receive the blessing of the Lord? And I will say it in Arabic. يرفع الرب شحو عليكم ويمنحكم سلاما ابديا الرب القادر على كل شيء الاب والابن والروح القدس الاله الواحد امين go in peace and serve the lord